Order, order. Coffee and Circuses episode 18 is now in session. In the dock is Matthias Vibier, who joined the University of Kent last year. Matthias is an expert in Roman law, hence the ridiculously cheesy opening to sound like a law court. Get it? It sounds like a law court. Anyway, uh, today we're talking about how laws provide a window into everyday life in the Roman Empire, including the curious case of an escaped slave who became a town councillor. We also cover why laws were issued, where they were stored, and whether lawyers had the same reputation then as they do today, hopefully not alienating my massive lawyer fan base in the process. Now, I'll admit, uh, as I mentioned in the episode, if you'd said to me a while ago, we're going to discuss Roman law for a while, I'd have been like, dear God, no. But... As we discussed today, and as Matthias has illuminated for me recently, these laws that were issued, they were issued because people would often go to the emperor or go to the imperial government and ask for something to be dealt with in their everyday lives, in their reaction to the trials and tribulations that everyday Roman people encountered and also this stuff has to be transferred down it has to be copied and it's very interesting how they as i say go about uh, bringing the laws together how they go about issuing them as well so it's a really interesting conversation in that regard we also discuss what brought matthias to study this aspect of roman life his experiences passing through the university systems in his homeland in the netherlands the us italy and the uk and why he thinks it's important for scholars to start looking beyond the standard languages of greek and latin and explore other ancient tongues such as syriac and ethiopian just to note the call for posters for track which is only about a month away now uh, will be closing on the 15th of march so not too long now so if you want to join us for track and you want to show people your work through the medium of a poster it's a good way of getting out of there, very visual, particularly, you know, archaeology, it's a very visual subject, then you've only got about a week left to do so. Also as well, if you teach Roman archaeology ahead of track, if you could chuck into your Google machine that Zena Kamash, who is doing our plenary lecture, Zena has put out, many people would have seen this, but she's put out a questionnaire, online questionnaire that she wants people to fill out about teaching Roman archaeology, addressing such subjects as the range of authors that you employ in your reading lists, what aspects of the Roman world or areas of the Roman world that you teach about. And as the plenary lecture is all about, it's all about questions of decolonizing Roman archaeology and moving into a more diverse period of, of scholarship, one might say, opening the doors and, and looking at it from different perspectives. But in order to do that, uh, we need to ask, ask questions about our current practices. And that's what Zena's uh, getting at. And our asking you to do to reflect on those for the questionnaire and then she's going to take the results of the questionnaire and use them for her plenary lecture for track which i anticipate is going to be absolutely fantastic so thanks for joining me as always and now on to the show I just love, I love fresh bread. As yeah, well. it's good. I mean, right bread's not fresh bread, really, but I mean, no, it's, uh, yeah. That is, uh, I say, when I go to the continent sometimes, that's one of the things I really like, the smell in the air of, of baked goods. Yeah, 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 that's good. It's good. And coffee, good coffee. Yeah, yeah. I've, um, I've bought new coffee from Marks and Spencer's, and it's, 
you know where they have coffee kind of rankings? It goes like from one to like six or something yeah, in terms of strength. Yeah. The one I've got at the moment is like a three and it's really not doing the trick. It's mm-hmm. too too light. I need to go from a four or five, I think. Yeah, I find it very difficult to find good ground coffee here. So uh, Saints and Breeze has... That's that's the place I frequent because it's close by, right? Um, it has these sort of home brand things which are... Decent, but none of them is is really good. Mm. But you know, I don't want to pay like six six pounds for a half a pound of coffee. That's too much. That's 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 excessive. So, I I have found I think the 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 most like some some sort of a working solution. So, uh, but it's it's not good. It's not strong, and if you make it strong, it's very acidic. Mm. Like it's basically like. Acid. Are you an espresso or mug or are you? I well, I I'm back to drip coffee, um, as the Americans call it. Um, but in Italy, of course, there was a lot of espresso because you will not find filter coffee there. It's impossible. Um, but espresso is not very uh, pleasant for my stomach. I have a fairly weak stomach in that sense, um, and it's very concentrated. And it also makes you kind of makes my head like uh, I'm I'm getting older, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, when I was in my twenties, I could drink like buckets of coffee, and now a small cup in the morning, and that's it. And I'll, because otherwise, my brain is completely overstimulated, and I'm completely uh, like I, I feel that my mind has sort of left my body and is kind of floating around in the cosmos. <laughs> That's, that's how I feel, which is not a, not a pleasant feeling. <laughs> I had a seminar weeks ago, which I went to where I'd already had a cup of coffee. And then because it's around 11 o'clock, I usually make myself another cup of coffee to take to the seminar. It's a two hour seminar. And I got in there. Uh, but about 15 minutes, 20 minutes before I could really start to feel that I was starting to get a bit of a headache. Mm. And I got in there and I went through the first hour. I drank all my coffee mm. and I got to the break midway through and I decided I've got some like Sudafed in my bag um, Sudafed tablets and they've got painkillers in so I'll take those the problem is they've also got caffeine in them as well mm-hmm. so the second half of the seminar the painkillers hadn't kicked in but the caffeine kicked in <laughs> so I'd had two cups of coffee and then uh, like this like con- like concentrated yeah, caffeine in the yeah. Sudafed so I still had the headache but at the same time, I, I could just feel my like heart just going boom, 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 boom. Like, you know, your body, you just yeah. sort of be like, yeah, yeah. Blah, blah. and it was, I think I got through it okay. I think they still understood what we were doing. But I was I was just standing there in front of the class, just like, just, just slow, breathe, breathe. Because I was like, my head pounding and my heart going. I was like, this is the worst combination. And this gave me a great segue. Uh, if you'd said to me a couple of years ago, that we're going to talk about Roman law for a while. I'd have been like, <laughs> oh, this is going to give me a headache. But I will say, talking to you since you arrived at Ken, I've really started to change my opinion on Roman law. I mean, I think when you say, because Roman law being your speciality, mm-hmm. I guess when somebody says Roman law, you just think of literally like legal codes yeah. and you just think of the the law courts essentially in society but as you say that actually the laws give you a window into everyday life that a very unique window into everyday life and you can actually see a lot of what goes on in people's lives in the roman world via law and since you said that to me i've kind of been like yeah no i, I really get it now yeah 
Yeah, so l- let me just clarify one thing from the start, and that is I don't look at law as a lawyer. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the trick to keep it interesting because I'm okay. So I apologize to all the lawyers who are, who may be listening to this. (laughs) I'm sure I have a large lawyer following. (laughs) Of course, of course, of course. They will try to get us all fired. Right. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, law is interesting, can be very interesting. And I actually have an interest. I had an interest in that too. So when I started university, I was considering to go to, to the law department rather than the classics. Uh, We can talk about that at some point. Um, uh, and so there are, you know, legal problems are interesting problems, um, but it becomes very technical and very dry. Uh, and also, it can once you start focusing on the doctrine, it becomes this kind of universe of its own. And law codes often have long lives and stuff like that. So you know, you you get this kind of uh, you ha- you run the risk of looking at it from sort of very very much from a systematic or a sort of laboratory perspective. Um, whereas what I find interesting is the role of law and society and how do Romans think about law and the importance of law and how do how does law um, illuminate something about Roman life other than, oh, they were so such rational people, right? This is still in, in Roman legal studies a very sort of, I, I want to say 19th century kind of idea that they were they were so rational and they were so good and blah, blah, blah. Well... Yes, they were. They were smart people. There were some very bright bright minds there. Um, but I'm not sure that I find that the most interesting thing about Roman law. And especially, um, I mean, the laws of the Republic um, and, you know, the jurists are very difficult sources because they are somewhat sort of timeless and fragmentary and stuff like that. Um, but uh, once you get to the later codes... It, in particular, the Code of Justinian. These are um, imperial responses to people who petitioned about a specific case. Um, so they had a problem with their neighbor, or they had a problem with someone in the town, or I don't know. There are cases of um, town councillors who were found out to be slaves from someone slave from a, from the next town, basically. What do we do with this, right? Um, and many of those cases, so so we on, we usually only have the responses of the emperor um, or his secretarial staff, probably. But these, um, uh, they they usually summarize the case quite nicely, so you get this very specific idea of people's problems, sort of their attempts to seek help, and dates of these rescripts, as we call them, they go from basically from Hadrian until, uh, or Severus probably, um, until Justinian-ish. And many of them cluster uh, around the Tetrarchy because um, Diocletian, um, some people uh, say that he issued two law codes with rescripts, so they're, they're, those are important sources for the Code of Justinian, but it's more likely that they were um, sort of privately, in sort of scare quotes, um, produce and that um, uh, Diocletian was probably quite happy with that, uh, for that to happen. So people had actually these kind of rescripts available. So in that sense, I'm interested. The Theodosian Code is a very complicated source as well because they are laws of general application, general import, um, but they were probably also triggered by individual cases. So you have this kind of, it's a bit like the Code of Justinian, but it's not always as specific, and they're usually addressed to not to individuals, but to 
officials uh, in the bureaucracy, so they, they give an interesting view about imperial communication, about ruling the empire. Mm. So is that kind of the, the question then, is that if they're asking, if they're answering somebody's petition, obviously these things got to get compiled in these big law codes and they're seen as being laws that are enacted across the empire. But by and large then, would they actually have tended to probably have been not that not really the case? So, I mean, I suppose would there have been quite a lot of variability in whether or not something is actually then applied across the empire or whether or not it's then just really applied to that case? Because obviously in, in my case, the, the really interesting one is book 16 of the Theodosian Code, mm -hmm. all about yeah. religion and particularly the so-called pagan beliefs in it. But I didn't even really realise that when I was doing the PhD, that what you were saying about the idea of, and I don't know how many other people realise that as well, because everyone bangs on about that book and it's got all these laws about mm -hmm. these anti-pagan anti -pagan legislation. Mm -hmm. But as you say, that they're probably actually issued because somebody's gone to the emperor and just whinged about a temple near their house or something. Yeah, yeah. there are cases, not many, but there are cases in which you can actually prove this. So there is a, I think there is this, this council of, one of the councils of Carthage, I, I'm, I always forget which one and how many there are and stuff, but that's not entirely my thing, the councils. But um, the bishops... Um, have this fight about orthodoxy or, you know, branding someone as heretic. Um, and then um, some there is some powerful faction or perhaps a majority. I, like, I really don't know the details at this point. I need to sort it out. Um, and they said, okay, we have made this decision. Now we go to the emperor to try to get, to petition him uh, and ask him to condemn the other faction as heretic so that we, so that they can be punished. And they succeeded. Uh, and we know this either because it's in the Council of Acts or we have a law that corresponds exactly to this in the Theodosia Code. It's one of the two. I, I'm, I'm very rusty about this now. But this is a quite interesting case. So here you can actually see, yeah, they, they sent someone over to Constantinople, basically, and uh, got got this sorted for themselves, right? It's, it's quite interesting, yeah. About the Code of Justinian... And the rescripts that are in there, many of which are, are, are tetrarchic, the question is more problematic because, yes, they were issued for a case, but then you have other legal sources like legal textbooks for, for education say, well, if a rescript has been issued once, you can use it as a, um, uh, as a precedent. So you can either use it in court or you can go and petition the emperor and he will probably grant you the same request if you can argue your case is similar. Um, so this is, um, they had a certain authority. Um, I don't like to, to speak about it in terms of binding legal force because that is conceptually like a, a can of worms, basically. <laughs> um, so they, they, had, they had authority, sometimes great authority. Um, but the main problem here, I think, which is also something I find really interesting, is... Um, let's say, knowledge of law in the sense of communication. So it's great that this is, uh, like this rescript has been issued, but if, you're, if you have this problem with your neighbor and you don't know about this, because, for example, you're nowhere in your area is, is there, um, uh, 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 let's say, a code of, uh, of Justinian available or one of its forerunners, yeah, it's not going to be much use for you, right? You need to have access to the information. It needs to circulate. Um, there is You can't simply go to Constantinople. I mean, that costs a lot of money. 
or wait until the emperor is in your neighborhood because that's a way to petition him. Um, but maybe he won't come for another 10 years, you know. Um, this is all very complicated. So how do you get to know that this stuff exists? Uh, how does how does this information circulate? And how can you make use of it? And how can you also, and this is sort of a related question, um, how can you be sure that it's correct? Because, of course, people can circulate falsified laws and, and there's not necessarily a way to check that. And that's also something I find very interesting. Sure. It's a very difficult topic to work on. So there are actually laws, people, well, people are trying to follow laws in the Roman Empire that aren't actually official laws. They're just yeah, ones that people all, have made all, up locally. Yeah, all the way to... doctored. I mean, this this is a big hang-up in the, uh, the, 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 the preface to the Theodosian Code. Uh, one of the reasons to issue this authoritative copy um, is that... Uh, there were lots of illegal copies. Uh, I'm I'm trying to think of the exact word they use. It unauthorized is probably a better word for it. Uh, copies that were circulating, um, and they were not. I mean, they were problematic. Uh, you couldn't really use them in court because there was no guarantee that they hadn't been basically messed with. Yeah. Um, so this 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 problem of authentication is something they're very aware of. The problem of circulation is also something they're aware of, and this is one of the differences, I think, also between, let's say, the Tetrarchs and their rescripts and the and sort of the 4th century uh, laws that then go into the Theodosian Code, um, is that they do more, they take probably... Um, I mean, I can't prove this, but I would think they take greater effort to make sure that, you know, the Praetorian prefects and uh, governors have copies in their archives and there are ways to check this this stuff yeah so so th that's that's something i would uh, i would have to say yeah <laughs> it's interesting as well one quick thing actually for anybody that doesn't know because i didn't know for a long time really exactly what the term meant, what is a rescript let's say a bureaucratic answer to a petition so when you have a problem traditional traditionally in roman law so when you go to the republic the way, if you have a conflict with your neighbor, you go, uh, you know, you go to the praetor, and you, you, the praetor looks at the edict, and they, they, you agree on an action, and then you have this, the praetor appoints a judge, and so you have this sort of uh, lawsuit. Um, but in the time of the empire, so you can actually s trace this process if you pay very careful attention. You can see it happening in Suetonius in the lives. There are these throwaways uh, that tell you something about how the emperors are trying to get control over uh, over the law courts so they they institute the so-called extraordinary procedure and I think it's in the it's it's in one of the the, the middle lives that um, that we hear that this was done in order because there was such a backlog uh, of court cases I think this was I think it was after the the, the Civil War so 68 69 there was such a backlog of cases that extra courts were needed, but these courts were sort of um, an extension of the emperor's uh, prerogative to judge. Um, and um, if you wanted to walk that route to sort of um, uh, uh, um, a court session, uh, you would petition either the emperor directly, which is, I mean, complicated, um, or the the provincial governor, you would you would do some some kind of um, bureaucrat of the of the um, emperor, and so you would you 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 would submit the petition like this is my problem to the bureaucrat, um, and then the bureaucrat or the emperor would 
uh, issue response, uh, like this is how you solve the case. If usually the formulation would be like, if the facts are such as you say, then this is the solution. Um, and then it was up to the judge. You could then you would go to the judge, and the judge would say, yes, the facts are such, so this would be the solution. Okay, that's a rescript. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the other thing I had to ask about, though, is you mentioned earlier the great story about the slave that leaves one town, goes to another town, and becomes a town councillor. Yeah. How how does that happen? I mean, you, obviously no you have a slave, he just runs away. But this was a, a, a law that had to be issued in reaction to a specific case where that actually did occur? I believe it's a rescript. So some case came up. Um, I would have to check this, but I, if I remember correctly, this the the person was recognized, like someone from the neighboring town or from from you know a different part of the province, right? Yeah. Um, came to this town and realized, wait a minute, I know this guy. And then of course the sl- the slave owner had this runaway slave, so he had some kind of claim. To this guy, who was uh, working as a town yeah. councillor, well. and so the others. I just like, love the idea what, of like somebody going to happened? going to the forum in like a neighbouring town, yeah. and then just seeing this guy walking yeah. through the forum, and everyone's like petitioning him or whatever, trying to talk to him, and he's like, "I know that guy from somewhere, <laughs> but where?" And then the penny drops, and it's just that's that. Yeah. I mean, those sort of things that you say. The idea that the Roman world is very. I suppose you could say ordered and structured, uh-huh. but there's clearly stuff that just goes on that just just completely flies in the face of all of that. The, there well, are there are ludicrous things that occur. There, yes, the, the Roman world is ordered, and and we get this impression from our sources, right? And especially because we have these legal sources, it all looks very well arranged and stuff. But uh, we should never forget that. The, I mean, there were, there were no smartphones. There wasn't yeah. even telephone. There wasn't even telegraph. There was there was nothing of the sort. Getting a letter. Uh, sent was quite quite sort of an, an ordeal um, so of course this was not uh, I mean there were I mean just information didn't flow all that far and easily it did of course um, but it's not like you can't compare it to 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 the modern world not even to half a century ago I mean I think you and I both remember the time before the internet mm. Um uh, simpler times. <laughs> simpler times, you know, you had to make phone calls and stuff. but uh, Or you had to actually, you know, two weeks in advance say, we meet at that town square yeah. at 2 p.m. And it worked perfectly fine, you know, <laughs> we survived until now. Um, but you have to just sort of scale that back even further when you sort of you go back to the own world. And, and, and yeah, things, uh, things uh, you know, there are, there, are, there are lots of islands, yeah. let's put it like that. Because the other thing, though, on the flip side of that, is that I don't think people have necessarily an appreciation for the colossal scale of the bureaucratic machine that the Roman Empire was. Because I suppose when most people, and this is thinking more of people on the street, mm. when you talk about the Roman world, people think of temples and yeah. the Colosseum and these big structures and aqueducts and... You know, particularly in Britain, obviously we have things like the Vindolanda tablets, we have the Walbrook tablets, but there is only a very, 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 very tiny percentage of the 
basically the writings of mm. this bureaucratic machine that survived, particularly mm. in the western half of the empire. But mm. it was a colossal. It must the archiving must have been absolutely colossal. Yes, yes, and it's also one of the big mysteries because we we don't have archives surviving, and we I mean there are lots of debates about how this worked and and you know when the Theodosian code was made or when its predecessors were made. Right? Sorry, not the Theodosian, the, the code of Justinian, the Theodosian code too. Same problem in a way. Like, where did they get these laws? Like, did they just go to Constant in Constantinople in the archive or um, in the West? Or did they go around the provincial towns? And, you know, when an emperor was on the move and he went to different provinces and people petitioned him, like, did they have an archive with them? Like, how mm. does this even work? We have no idea. There are some big names in the field who have very specific ideas about that. Uh, but uh, uh, those ideas tend to be very different, like who, depending on who you ask, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they're, they're quite, they can be quite militant about defending their views, but we, we simply don't know. It's, it's, or we simp- I mean, there are some, some indications here and there. There's an interesting case that will interest you, Victor Avita. Mm. He, he goes on in the... He goes on about a law that was issued by uh, one of the Vandal kings... Um, and it seems, I think the law is, f- is sort of fra- framed as a reaction, as undoing one of the laws um, that we find in the Theodosian Code. Um, and there is a lot of reference to other laws. Um, but we we can't put our finger on it, whether he was actually reading the Theodosian Code. Um, from the structure of the information, it doesn't seem that he's following the structure of the Theodosian Code. Um, and so some people have suggested, no, he, he just had the archive at Carthage, and that's that's what they found in that archive. But who knows, mm. right? It's, it's uh, I mean, maybe there were lost collections. It must be, because that's the other option, obviously. There may have been less famous collections about which we don't know anything um, that formed sources of the Theodosian Code or the Code of Justinian. Um, we, we simply have no idea, but archiving is... Yes, it's 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 one of the big mysteries. Yeah, because yeah. interesting as well, because that's where your particular area of study or your particular area of focus with late antique texts. Because one of the things you you focus on in particular or looked at particularly on, if I'm right, <laughs> is the the continuation and the use of laws from the Roman period into the successor kingdoms. Well, that's that yeah, that's, that's something I find interesting, and I've done work on the Visigothic uh, side of things. Um, and I'd be interested in looking more at the Vandal stuff as well, but that's that's kind of a, a, a quite tricky because we don't have uh, sort of very abundantly obvious sort of sources. Yeah. But that's why it's interesting, right? Yeah. Um, but actually, my, my, my PhD was on the early empire. Uh. I was on jurists, so I, I, I haven't looked at emperors uh, basically for my thesis. And uh, it, was, it wasn't until I got to Italy that I was more sort of forced to look at the late antique stuff as well. So, and, and that's something I've, I've been busy with. Uh, but I've looked mostly at jurists rather than imperial law. So that's, that's another... I mean, it's, it's, it's something that interests me, but I'm more of a jurists guy in the end. <laughs> <laughs> because you've, you're currently juggling several publications on the way, right? You've got the, the monograph, you've got a couple yeah. of articles... Are they all are they all kind of interlinked in the same subject wise or are they because yeah. the the monograph the monograph is coming out of the PhD work yeah but... that's right yeah so I'm juggling a bunch of things um indeed too many things of course so yeah I'm I'm 
trying to finish the the, the monograph uh, out of the thesis, which I I needed to get some distance from, and I needed to learn more about certain aspects of Roman law that I had kind of conveniently ignored for the for the thesis, because it was simply impossible to do everything right. And I also, I mean. I'm someone who, when you have to rewrite something, I need to have a little bit of distance because otherwise, if you're too too soon going to rewrite the entire thing, I can still feel the pain of like getting to the version that I have like in front of me, and it's like I I invested so much energy and so much for, like there was so much frustration in the writing process. Yeah. I need to sort of sort of de disown it in a in a sort of emotional way, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so I kind of wish I'd. I'd had the chance to do that. I mean, obviously, the problem now is with things like the ref. You yeah, just have to get stuff yeah, out so quickly. Yeah, yeah. But as you're saying, I yeah. think I would have been quite well served by... I still think the book's good. still think... The, still of course, think the of course. But, of but course. I, I think there's stuff now that I look back on, and it's only in the last year or so, some of the other stuff I've been doing to do with temples, that my brain has kind of realigned slightly in terms of my thoughts on... Yeah. It doesn't change what I said in the book, but there's... Yeah. There's basically what I've realised now is there's certain things that make my argument even more concrete that I yeah. wish I had known at the time. But I guess that can yeah. be that can be in volume two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a second edition. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Director's cut. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, so. So I'm I'm now I'm now back to that. And then uh, I mean there were other reasons why I couldn't really work on it full time because I I I first had a very intense teaching job mm. uh, after the PhD and then. Uh, I went off to Italy for a postdoc, but this was with an ERC project, and and I needed to get up to speed with with uh, jurists in late antiquity and imperial law a little bit, and 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 that is a big project. Uh, so it's ERC funded, and it's about the circulation of juristic texts. So ju- the jurists are sort of the legal scholars of of, uh, let's say, the late Republic and the early Empire. Um, and Rediscovering the hidden structure, right? Yeah, that's the name of it. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and so, this is what my 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 PhD is about. It, it, it's kind of an intellectual history of this this this, and I approach the jurist as a sort of scholarship, which I think is is productive. Um, but this is a time when emperors are still not entirely in control of the legal scene, and these are these are sort of. Um, People who give advice to individuals and to politicians uh, or officials is a better word, um, who are not necessarily emperor, they are priests or so or whatever. Um, and um, there is an interesting power struggle going on in the first century and, and the second century as well uh, about who ultimately controls legal authority. And this, in the end, of course, these are the emperors. Um, but this is not. Uh, this is. It's not the case that Augustus comes around, and this this has all been sorted from mm. twenty seven BC or whenever you want to to stick a number on it. Right. This is not how it works. In late antiquity, the the situation is different. But these guys, these jurists, wrote so many texts, and they were so important in articulating uh, Roman law uh, and much of of the stuff that was basically unwritten law, customary law. Um, that uh, they were consulted, um, but we don't really have many sources after the Severan Age until Justinian collects them for us. Um, and so it is this old dogma that there was this period of decline and jurists were, were absent and stuff. Uh, but this turns out to be completely uh, not true because there are many papyri, actually, fragments of 
pre-Justinianic versions. Uh, let's, let's say Justinian made this anthology and he edited some of the stuff. Um, but we have, uh, I mean, the, these, these texts have been known for, for, for a century or so. We have these papyri that predate Justinian and that have these texts. So they were read also in Egypt and sometimes they have Greek annotations. So people were actually trying to make sense of them. Um, and then there's also a whole bunch of pre-Justinianic collections that are simply not studied very much. And that's the part of the project I've been working on mostly, make a sort of companion introduction to these te- these collections as texts and as a form of like an intellectual culture that that engages with jurists. Um, uh, but um, uh, we also discuss uh, issues of transmission and circulation and, and sources. And so it's it's kind of hardcore philology meets hardcore source criticism meets intellectual history. And it's going to be a monstrous thing. It's going to be like 700 pages or 800 pages. It's an enormous amount of work. Uh, and it's extremely nice. I mean, we're working with a lot of international um, scholars who all bring different perspectives to the table. Uh, and it's really, like, it's working out really well. And it's really interdisciplinary scholarship at its best. Um, even though at first sight it may sound very tedious, dry, because it's law, um, and very dry and tedious because it's philology and source <laughs> criticism. But I think it's it's important and I think it's also productive. So you can study the philology, the, the transmission of these texts, and you know, um, textual variations. And in many cases, you can actually say something about these texts from a, a social historical perspective or intellectual history perspective. Uh, and, and and I think that's very nice. It's very nice, and it, it changes our our. I think it 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 gives the ev- it gives evidence that we need to really rethink the role of these jurists and and legal culture in late antiquity before Justinian. Justinian did not come out of nothing. I mean, this is going to be a very basic question, but what kind of class of person would a jurist in the Roman world be? Like, what, what would be their background? I mean, where do these people originate from? What kind of social media would they? I mean, could yeah. you be... For, could you just be somebody that... Have, I guess it's 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 a position that requires a significant amount of learning, so does sure. it, they have to be yeah. of elite, elite stature? I mean, are there any... I'm showing my my limits of my knowledge here, but are there any famous, like really famous jurists? I mean, obviously well, in the early law courts, when you think yeah. about people like Cicero, etc., obviously in the law courts. Yeah. But later on, are there, are there any people that? Yeah. Out? So, so Cicero is traditionally not considered a jurist, but yeah. a forensic lawyer, right? And so uh, Cicero had his pals, Quintus Mucius Scivola, and who have you? Like, there's a bunch of these people he he mentions in his letters, and many of those have senatorial backgrounds. Um, some of them, like Quintus Mucius, was also the Pontifex Maximus, so he also had this sort of leg into pontifical legal traditions. Um, but once you get to the the empire, the first century, I mean, one of the ways the first century is often characterized is this kind of triumph of the of the equestrian class and the freedmen and blah blah blah, right? But it's this is also the case, I think, with the lawyers. You see a shift that many of them in, from the first century on have a kind of equestrian background or not necessarily a senatorial background. Um, and some of them become full-time practitioners. So they, they start teaching or they, they write books half of the year. Um, and, um, yeah, they, I mean, these are very highly educated people. And these are the people we know about because Pliny writes about them or... 
the digest preserves their fragments. Uh, famous ones are, of course, Alpian and Papinian and Paul mm. in the in the Severan age. Uh, Alpian is, of course, very famous. Um, these, yeah, so these people are extremely educated and productive, um, and their their work survived. And they had they had very very good uh, logically trained brains. But then where it gets really interesting, so these are kind of the high class. Um, uh, some people would call them literary jurists, but then there is there are you know people called juris consultus or juris prudens who pop up in only in the epigraphic sources. So you know there are people from Nîmes, there are people from Spain, there are people from North Africa, there are people possibly from the Rhine area, um, and those were people. We don't know exactly what they did because they're usually fragmentary inscriptions or grave inscriptions and and, and stuff like that. But um, these people, they were probably advising, or they were they were sitting around the law courts, or they were pleading um, in the law courts, and they had some expertise. Those I find actually the more interesting ones. Mm. Uh, I mean, I I like conceptual um, research, so I I really like these highbrow guys. Uh, and that's what my book is about, um, b- because yeah, I look at the sources that that come from Justinian mostly, um, but I've become very interested in these sort of um, lower class, if that that's not a good term for it. So these kind of less fancy jurists, let's, hmm. let's call them that. Uh, but they were actually doing a lot of the work and 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 also probably dirty work for people with money, mm. basically. Lawyers in Roman society have a different re- reputation to lawyers today. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find all sorts of really awful, awful things uh, that are being said about lawyers in Rome, uh, especially in, in late antiquity. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think there are there are people. I mean, there are polemics. It's very interesting. Cicero is very polemical against the jurists when he needs to be. So they are pedantic. They're idiots. They don't know anything uh, except you know how to how to decline the word filius or filia uh, uh, in, in the dative plural as filiabus, this weird plural, right? Um, this, is, this is a concoction of the lawyers because they want to exclude women from, from uh, inheritances. But uh, Cicero knows a lot about law as well, uh, and sometimes he can be very nice about them. Mm, he can be okay. very nice about them. So uh, you'll find anything, basically, yeah. the entire spectrum. <laughs> so take me back then to the beginning as in what drew you to the, the classical world was it something that you were interested in quite young or was it yeah. as you say you went to university and you did contemplate going down the law route ironically but yeah so how how, how did you come to the classical world so i came from a family of teachers uh and none of them went to university i think uh, but that, I mean, it, it 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 was a very interesting environment because my grandfather was a teacher of French and of Dutch, uh, and he was a headmaster, and he founded a local historical society, and he gave me like photo books about ancient Roman Greece when I was very little. He he uh, said one day you have to learn Gothic and stuff like that. <laughs> so it was it was it was really funny. It was really funny. He what about had, sorry? What about did you actually grow up? What, what was your hometown? So the, my my hometown is called Emmen, which is a, a small town or a provincial town um, in in uh, the province of Drenthe in in the Netherlands. Drenthe is a place that has no traditional cities. It has lots of forests and and just farmland, uh, but they do have uh, forty odd 
uh, megalithic structures. So okay. to archaeologists, uh, this this may be known. It's it's an interesting place. Um, so that's that's where I grew up. Uh, my grandfather was very sort of he stimulated me to develop an interest in history, and I found it very interesting. But I was also maybe more than history interested in languages. So my my grandfather was obviously a polyglot. My 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 mother is a, is a, or is a retired now a music teacher and school teacher, and and we I mean we went off to holidays in France, and you know they spoke three four languages. Um, and that, that was great. I went to um, to middle school at some point, um, and I needed to to choose a school. And the schools they're all they're all state funded. And I mean back then at least there were no private schools, and it was unaffordable anyway. Um, but the schools offered there were there were three main schools, and two of them offered Latin and Greek. And I was at the open then. I was like, oh, I. Oh man, I have to do this. Like I have to do Latin. Yeah. Right? I have to do all the languages like French and, and German and English. Uh, but I also absolutely have to do Latin and Greek. And I I thought Greek will be will be the, the big deal because it has a different alphabet and it's like the Greeks and you know, and then you know the 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 first year we didn't have the ancient languages, and the second year we started with Latin, so one at a time. And I was like, this is so amazing. This is like incredible. So never mind the Greek, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I took the Greek. It, well, it all went just fine. But then I, I went to university. And so the thing I was really interested in was sort of this this conceptual. Like I, I'm interested in concept and in problems. Uh, I can't really be bothered about chronology or <laughs> even about facts, like pr- proving that someone existed or not, or that there was one Philostratus instead of two or three, right? And so in our history classes, we had good teachers, but it was a little bit like that. And so I was completely checked out. I dropped it. I didn't do what in this country would be A-levels. Uh, I didn't do history. I just went on for Greek and Latin and all the languages I could possibly do. Um and I was like, yeah, language is nice because, you know, you have uh, you have grammar and you have to decode <laughs> it. It's like, it's it's good. Um, and then I, I also started to develop a liking for, for math. I'd always liked um, uh, physics, but I'm not really sort of a science person. Like, I find it very interesting, but I don't have the brain for it. So then it was time to go to university. And I, I thought, well, law law's about solving problems. Uh, and it also gets you a job. So that might be an option. and then But then it was like, I, I talked to a very nice guy at the orchestra I was playing. Okay. Um, and he said to me, he, he had been studying, and he said, you're an idiot if you don't do Greek and Latin, because um, if it doesn't work out professionally, you can always do another law degree, but it won't work the other way. Once you go down the law route, you will never do it again. However, however much you tell yourself, one day I'm going to take the degree in yeah. Greek and Latin as well. Um, so do it. And I was like, okay, that's it. So I went, I went off to Leiden. Um, it was, uh, I had to get used to sort of doing philology all day, but it was, it was, I loved it. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, I just skated around the courses or in, in ancient history. So I still yeah. had this kind of hang up about facts and chronologies. And so then I, I majored in Greek and in uh, Greek, not Latin, mind you. Um, uh, on a philosophical topic, uh, uh, absolutely abysmal MA thesis. I then I went off to uh, do a PhD, or I wanted to do a PhD, 
And I wanted to do something philosophical, but I was very disheartened by just the amount of stuff that had been written about Plato and Aristotle and, um, you know, the Stoics. It was like, yeah, I'd love to work on it, but I don't want to read for two years and then find out that my topic has been exhausted, right? Um, so I decided, let's do something. Let's try to do something original. And so somehow via a friend, I came sort of onto the, the Roman jurists. I was like, that is interesting. They're sort of very sort of intellectual thinkers. And then via a different person, I got sort of the suggestion, why, if you if you like politics and, and problems and, you know, philosophy and law and classics, why don't you have a look at St. Andrews? Because uh, in St. Andrews, there is, uh, there's a program with law and politics and classics and they work on ancient encyclopedias and there's someone who does Roman law. And and I look I, I I checked them out and I applied for a place and they they took me because uh, there was a professor my my later uh, PhD supervisor Jill Harris uh, who apparently uh, thought I was uh, I was worth investing in yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, I I got I got a place and I went and I I, I absolutely loved it it was it was amazing uh, and. Uh, uh, but there was a lot of work to do because I knew absolutely nothing about Roman history. I know absolutely nothing about law, jurists, etc. I knew something about Latin and knew something about ancient philosophy at a sort of undergraduate level. And it's so funny because at some point she told me, Matthijs, there are a lot of interesting thoughts going on in your head, but you need to get real about chronology and facts. <laughs> <laughs> this was two years into my PhD. <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, and, uh, She's just like, do you know who Augustus is? Yeah, you're like, exactly. oh, I've heard of him. I'm, I'm yeah. aware of his work. <laughs> kind of, yeah, exactly. Sort of like between the third century BC and the third century AD, <laughs> somewhere there. Um, so post-Hellenistic. Um, this uh, it was it was really funny, um, but uh, I, I think it worked out quite quite decently the dissertation I mean the examiners were quite okay with it you got a job now so I must got have, a job must now have, but, must but, have but, but well. the thing is I came out of my PhD and I was I had worked on Roman law and you know every every historian was very nice to me but I was still like oh no I'm a Latinist right I'm, I do Latin mm. uh, and um, I, I've the first years in the job market, I also I applied mostly for Latin jobs and like no responses. And then at some point, sort of the, the penny dropped and I was like, no, I need to market myself as a historian uh, and I need to get real about facts and chronology. <laughs> um, and that's that, that, that's when things started to work out better. Yeah, uh, that's interesting, though, because that just makes me it's actually something that Ian Haynes said when we were on the podcast. He was doing the podcast a few weeks ago. It was actually going down the line. He mentioned something that Greg Wolf had once said to him, which kind of brings the background to St. Andrews. But he's, Ian just said that something that Greg said to him once was, or he asked Greg, how do you define yourself? Because Greg obviously does a ton of different things. Mm. And Greg was like, apparently, well, apparently, anyway, this is how Ian put it, that Greg doesn't really think of himself necessarily as one particular thing. Like he's not a necessarily an ancient historian or an archaeologist or whatever. He's he's whatever the question needs him to be. Like whatever he's doing... He, he's mm. that's what he is yeah. and I thought that was quite interesting because I suppose in, in my case if you're going to ask me what are you I'm like an archaeologist or particularly a Roman archaeologist but then I'm like well actually you know I teach ancient history I know my ancient history I enjoy ancient history and there's before we started recording as well I've gotten very interested in, in recent times about things like also the history of archaeology and mm. I don't know there are there's a number of things where I think actually yeah that you develop all these different interests and 
I really want to go away now and write something more to do with things like reception and yeah, let's say that yeah, kind of following yeah. on that I really want to write something on the reception of Mithras because it's very interesting yeah how it is super he, interesting he yeah. gets brought up so often in various <laughs> yeah. ways like I read books that I don't expect him to turn up in and his name gets mentioned yeah. and I'm just like oh but um, he isn't he kind of this token alternative for Christianity or something yeah like it's, it's, a, it's just a weird one because Thomas More in his Utopia has Mitra as the deity, the islanders mm. worship, and then, well, towards the end of writing the book, I was reading Neil Gaiman's American Gods, which is like a fiction book mm-hmm. about deities. I don't know if you come across it at all. I've not read it. Yeah, no. it's about like deities, like where they get conjured up in people's minds, but then they become like real beings. But then people like lose interest, and they're kind of down on their luck, really, and trying to fight against the kind of oncoming tide of like new deities which are like the internet and things like that mm. but there's a th- there's just a throwaway line in there about Mithras where one of the guys is talking <laughs> about him it's like have you heard from Mithras recently and he's like I saw him like, like trying to hitch a ride down the road once yeah Jesus came and nicked all his stuff so <laughs> and then at the, just after that I read John Julius's Norwich book on the popes which in the opening chapter talks about you know, Peter and the very first popes but it mentions the cult of Mithras as being a rival to Christianity and I was just like, two quite different books, yeah, like fiction yeah. book and, yeah. and non-fiction, but for popular audience. And think about the Thomas More stuff as well. And I was just like, eh, it's an interesting thing that he just, the name crops up so often. And as you say, quite often it crops up in relation to when someone's talking about Christianity or Christian themes. Mm-hmm. Although more, ironically, using it more in a positive sense, whereas the other... But yeah, that was just something interesting to say. But to kind of just go, go back around to when it was kind of about... You know, in my case, being like, well, I'm an archaeologist, but I can do I can do that stuff. Like, yeah. I can write something there that's not really based well, around archaeology. Because you ended up going to America for two years. Two I, years d- I did, yeah, yeah. That was that was uh, that was my first job, and that was I mean, they always say the first job away from your PhD granting institution is the most important one. I I agree. Um, that that was an amazing experience. I mean, it it was good. I got to teach almost like everything or at least sort of the entire spectrum from you know archaic greece to late antiquity i did latin um and you you just you have to just go in and 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 teach like a survey of the entire greek world or or the roman world you have to prepare your lectures and they have 15 week semesters with two or three lectures a week so you can do the math that's a lot of hours uh, playing with powerpoint um (laughs) um it's uh it, it it was great it was it was so good it was uh it 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 is an enormously helpful thing for your own general sort of overview of the field um uh, and it it makes you very uh, adaptable to sort of step into new teaching situations and and, and do things yeah i enjoyed mm. that very much yeah. yeah how do you find have you found the shifting moving around countries in terms of i guess like I mean, we talked about this with Sophie last week and previously with Patty as well about the kind of different ways in which this like different systems that you encounter in different countries. Yeah, it is quite different. I mean, so I, I mean, I, I studied in a Dutch system, which was a very focused. It's a it's much like it is here. But I mean, people come in with five years of ancient languages. So it was very philological. Uh, we did this pretty intense reading list uh, for a couple of years. Um and then it was basically 
you were more or less on your own. So you had to take some seminars and write papers and write a dissertation. But, you know, it was I found it pretty hands-off and I, I wish there had been a little bit more guidance. Um, but I survived all right. And then, of course, I, 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 I came to the UK for uh, my graduate studies and did a little bit of teaching. Then I went to America uh, where the system is very much... Um, for undergraduate education, students enroll uh, and they they either pick or do not yet pick a major, but the, the degrees are very wide. So you get a lot of students who um, in your classes um, who, uh, who will only be taking this class in the classics department. So there there is this what they call general education, um, well, courses or modules. Um, and you will get, I don't know, 100 students or 50 students, and most of them will be engineering majors, or they will be in English, or they will be in supply chain management, like what, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so all the, the entire university. Um, uh, and, and many of those degrees, um, uh, if you major in those sort of specialisms, they require you to take one or two humanities courses, um, and then uh, they might end up with Roman history because they 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 either have an interest in it or they've seen a nice movie or their housemate told them it was an interesting course or something like that. You you get all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds, um, and it's it's challenging and rewarding because you need to make sure to keep everyone on board. And there mm. will also be majors of classics, so there will be people who know a lot already. So you have this very sort of diverse audience and uh, from very diverse places uh, and, and backgrounds um, you want to keep them all on board and you you just want to make sure that they they come away that they've learned something and that they also liked it um, and that is um, that is very challenging in order to sort of find the right balance uh, you have to be quite flexible and be able to to sort of jump in and help people individually if you have to, even if that means helping 80 people. And on the other hand, it's extremely rewarding because you get these different perspectives and people uh, um, are, are usually quite happy to ask questions about, you know, ancient technology or uh, all sorts of things that, uh, from perspectives that you haven't thought about. And so it is an extremely, um, um, an extremely interesting and rewarding system to teach in now then of course i went to italy but i didn't really teach then i went to um back to the uk so to this job uh, and here it's more okay so the students come in because they have chosen to do ancient history or archaeology or classics or whatever um and um so they will have already quite a bit of knowledge and they're also more um more of them are geeky about it so it's quite different, but it's in a very different way. It's, it's extremely rewarding to teach these, these students. It's, it's, it's marvelous. So mm -hmm. both systems, I mean, they are very different, but they both are really, really nice to work in. So then just thinking about the future, because I know you certainly mentioned before, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. you got yeah. you got some very keen ideas no, about how you'd like to see the discipline evolve I, in the future. I, I, I don't I don't want to be an evangelist or anything. <laughs> <but>. Please, <laughs> preach, preach. Preach, <laughs> preach. It's very late antique. <laughs> um, yeah, we so we talked before a little bit about uh, the field and the future of the field. And I think it's quite interesting to see that, I mean, there are also... in. And it's different in different countries, but there are all sorts of pressures on 
classics departments, uh, for example, for being elitist or, you know, cl the classics are no longer taught in school. So what do we do? And then the, cla the, the sort of the instant reaction is, well, we can't offer seriously a degree uh, if the students don't have the languages. Um, I think that's kind of a, a like a, a position that sort of misrecognizes the kind of pressures we are under and the dangers we're facing. Um, and then there is also this kind of, uh, and it, that ties in again with the sort of elitist perspective of our studies, uh, and that is that uh, we've been focusing a lot on Greece and Rome over the past centuries, um, and uh, for Greece and Rome, we've mostly been focusing on classical, what what we call the classical periods or the Augustan period or the Golden Age or something like that, um, and um, which means that there are these kind of, if you would plot it, if you would make a chronological plot and sort of map the frequency of studies about particular topics or eras or, or individuals, I mean, I think we can all imagine where the peaks are. Uh, and but also where where sort of the low points are, and I I think there is a lot of work to be done. Uh, let's say not on the Augustan age, but on other periods of Rome, uh, especially things like the third century or good old third century. Stuff. <laughs> good old third century. That's actually great. It's just it's just, it's just mad. Like yeah. the constant like chopping and yeah. changing of emperors, like emperors that we only know exist from like two coins. Yeah, exactly. Sort of it's it's crazy. Like, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a fascinating period. Yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely interesting. Uh, and also on sort of less less famous authors uh, or, or less fancy authors, because, I mean, and this is not to offend anyone, but, uh, I mean, I'd be very hesitant to advise a student to write a PhD dissertation on Virgil or Cicero. I mean, it can be done, and there, there are unexplored avenues in, in sort of the, 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 the Virgilian scholarship, but that is a really crowded field. And there are lots of books and articles in many languages. And I, I, I wish we were more, not aggressive, but we were more assertive about doing things that haven't, like authors that haven't really been looked at uh, all that much. Uh, and they, they can be found in all periods, I think. So that's one thing. The, um, uh, the other thing is that... Just on a very quick side note to that, growing up, I, there was a collection of toys that came out in the UK mm. and a TV series that accompanied them called Mighty Max. Mm. And in that, it was about this kid that had this baseball cap and he travels like to different dimensions wearing this baseball cap. But his kind of mentor in it, like his Yoda character, was a like humanoid owl, old man, like mm. old owl, mm. whose name was Virgil. <laughs> so having had that growing up ever since then, I, every time someone talks to me about Virgil, I picture him as being this kind of old uh, anthropomorphic owl, yeah. uh, which is rather odd, <laughs> yeah, but I can't funny, escape yeah. that mental image of Virgil. Yeah, is, Sorry, just to carry on. That's because really funny. That's really the, funny. the owl's name was Virgil. Yeah. So that's to this day, every time someone talks about the Roman author Virgil, I just picture that. I'll show you a picture later of, uh, yeah, yeah. of, him, of this, this wide, wise old owl, which I don't know is perhaps the best way of describing Virgil yeah. in reality. Well, I mean, I, I have nothing against Virgil, and I think his text is incredibly rich, and it's a long text, etc., or a, big cor a fairly sizable corpus. Um, so it's it's not that, but I think in terms of, um, you know, spending the resources, basically, um, I, I I'd be I'd be more interested in encouraging people to work on other topics than sort of the very sort of standard classical topics. Now, the the counter argument is, of course, that we need people who are experts because they need to teach this and they need to teach this at graduate level, etc. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, 
but um, in terms of research, I I really think there are um, there are other things to do that haven't had proper attention. So that that that's that's basically sort of a very personal uh, idea. Now the other thing I I find important. Uh, is and this this is being done and it is difficult because we don't always have the sources is to move away from the let's say the stratospheric level of Cicero. Cicero is great. Um, I mean, it's he's amazing. But what about ordinary people? And I know it's very sim- simple of me to say and, and kind of silly of me to say. Well, well, why don't you look at you know uh, Cicero's clients, especially the poorest ones? But we don't have any evidence, right? Um, there are of course also papyri that actually, okay, in a different place and in a different time, mostly give us a very interesting perspective in daily life. Unfortunately, there are many papyrologists who who do excellent work on this. But uh, I think there's a lot of stuff uh, to be done. And then, so so not focusing on just the elite perspective. And I think this is something uh, maybe the philologists would have more problems with because we simply don't, I mean, we simply are stuck with these elite sources. Mm. Um, but the historians can do... Uh, a great job looking at these uh, uh, other perspectives, and and I have to say the philologists have done great job about gender studies and stuff like that. It's really it's really great. The third thing I I would have to say is just a quick example. I mean, that just makes me think about last week talking to Sophie about her work, which focuses on looking at women in mid mid Republican Rome outside of aristocratic women. Mm. Um, so she's got a lot of interesting things to say on particularly actresses. Um, mm. That's mm-hmm. just fascinating. Just yeah. listening yeah, to yeah, yeah. like somebody who's exploring the lives of these people or these these groups in society that don't really up until now had had much of a voice or mm-hmm. haven't had a voice for like I don't know. One and a half to two thousand years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, Karen. No, no, no. <laughs> fine. The the other thing is that, uh, and and I th- I mean this is not necessarily an elite perspective, but um, I think I mean if you want to study the ancient world, and so uh, I I'm saying ancient world and not classics. I think it is really important to start thinking outside simply Greece and Rome. Now, okay. There are all kinds of problems, of course. As soon as you say that, uh, Latin and Greek are taught in in schools, and maybe like they 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 will continue to be taught in schools. I hope, um, and they are taught in universities. But there is more than Latin and Greek in the ancient world, especially for historians, I suppose. So I for 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 one of the projects I've been working on, I've been. Looking at a Syriac text now, I like I immediately add, I don't know Syriac at this point. I would like to learn it, but I just need to find the time, and that's that's the major challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and these are Roman law texts, probably from uh, f- from the fifth century, uh, from Antioch or so, so somewhere thereabouts, uh, uh, and they 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 are used for private law suits or maybe by a provincial governor or something and they survive in syriac and that's it's an extremely important uh language to know i think uh, if you want to look at the near east uh in the time of uh, of the roman empire and the byzantine empire and there are more languages like that when we i mean i think if we talk about the mid-republic we should know something about uh, punic mm. you know uh egyptian is important uh, we can't learn all those languages um, but I think it is, def- I mean, I would like to believe that we are moving towards a 
sort of conception of ancient studies, classics, and ancient history, and whatever the traditional subdivisions are, um, that is much more inclusive of other languages and perspectives. Uh, and, and I know I'm kind of, it's a little bit of a straw man that I'm putting up, um, because people are actually doing this. Um, but I do think... I really do think there's a there there is still a lot of progress to be made, uh, and I'll be the first one to admit that I haven't got round to looking at Punic or uh, Syriac in detail uh, or Ethiopic. You know, uh, Ethi Ethiopic. Uh, the, some Italians discovered a fourth century text that was originally written in well, it was translated from Greek, I think, but it is a, maybe a Latin text. I'm not sure now. But it, it, the text only survives in Ethiopic, and it was just recently discovered mm -hmm. because nobody had bothered to learn Ethiopic, even though we kind of knew it could be important. Um, and I know it's a huge investment of time to learn a language, and you may not find all that much stuff. Um, but I think it's, it's important because, you know, it's the ancient world. We want to talk about it, and we can't simply be stuck in Rome and, 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 and Greece and Constantinople and wherever you want to get stuck. But I think, uh, I think, I think it's important. Now I just need to <laughs> to find the time uh, to live up to my principles, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think you've already got enough languages under your belt anyway. You're doing fine at the moment. <laughs> yeah, ancient languages. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I still haven't done the Gothic. <laughs> <laughs> After all these years. <laughs> Across that you carried with yeah. your entire life. It's interesting as well, just I've been saying that though, because that probably does also reflect, I guess, in some respects the very Eurocentric view of the past that scholars have traditionally had. I mean, if you go right back to what was it, episode three of the podcast when I had Zena Kamash on, Zena was talking about the importance nowadays of people tweeting things, for example, in languages other than English. Like if you're talking about the archaeology, perhaps of the Near East, like Syria or somewhere like that, or Iraq or whatever, you know, publishing it, or pu putting it online in... Um, uh, Arabic, obviously, you know, just doing that is—it's one of those things that you you don't really see that much, but it's because most people like disseminate this information primarily through kind of a very Eurocentric way of doing it, and it's just very interesting that reflects kind of what you're saying about people's approaches to the past more generally, where people still focus on you might say the kind of the root of the European languages in terms of uh, yeah. Greek and Latin. And well, Greek and Latin, Greek and Latin have traditionally played such an important role in education in in the West. In uh, I mean, ever since antiquity, but not uh, not least also in the last two or three centuries, uh, with the rise of this sort of classical scholarship, if that's a good term. Um, and so, and you know, there are also limits to what what you can do. You only have so much time. You only have so much brain capacity, and you only have so much patience because mm -hmm. learning a language is really annoying. I mean, it takes a lot of time, a lot of willpower, and a lot of frustration. It's not just like a walk in the park, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, it it really is an investment. Uh, but I think I wouldn't mind sort of a sort of better integration between traditional Greek and Latin departments or classics departments and these Near Eastern departments that are in existence in certain universities, but not all of them. And I think that would be a good thing. But then, of course, there are disciplinary boundaries and different ways of thinking about how to study things. So that, that it is all very complicated. It's very easily said. 
but not so easily done. I realize that. And then there needs to be money for that, to have people who actually, you know, to employ people who actually know Syriac or, and, and have specialism as well. Yeah, that's complicated. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how things yeah. uh, evolve. You don't fancy trying your hand at cuneiform at some point as well? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it, it would be interesting, but uh, it, I mean, at this point, I need to be somewhat realistic about how much I can do, uh, and uh, because we also have to be productive, yeah. right? Maybe, um, uh, maybe a project for retirement. <laughs> project for retirement. I mean, I, I would do something that has to do uh, like a language that was in use in the in, in the Roman Empire in late antiquity. Yeah. So maybe cuneiform is. Is a bit before my time. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, just to round off then, um, so as you mentioned, you've got a few publications on the way. You've got stuff in proof at the moment. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when can we expect to, to, to see the stuff appear, though? Things that, that you got an idea at the moment? Or well, what? so the, the idea is 2020 for, for the book and the volume. Um, we'll have to see because, um, okay, the book depends on me. Uh, and I'm I'm making very good progress. Um, um, and the, but the volume is not simply dependent on me. Like I work with a lot of people, uh, and I'm dependent on them delivering their stuff. And then we have to have some of that stuff translated into English. Uh, this so, is the rediscovering the hidden yeah, structure. Volume. Yeah, 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 yeah. This this uh, yes, these 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 pre-Justinianic uh, collections. Um, so yeah, we we need to get it out in twenty twenty basically. Um, but you know, we'll we'll we are dependent on other people, and um, that's only natural that it may take a little while. I mean, we've all missed deadlines, and we're proud of it, I suppose. <laughs> Don't tell the students. Um, but you know, this 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 is how these things go. So uh, soon, I hope. Yeah, there is work to be done though, and that's. That's the thing. So I don't want to get anyone's uh, uh, super excited, right? No, no, probably not for this Christmas. <laughs> Leave it for next year's yeah. Christmas list. <laughs> and so, if um... hopefully for next year's Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if people want to, if people want to contact you, they can just find you via the Kent webpage. Absolutely, they? Yeah, they want Absolutely. to discuss discuss Roman law in particular. <laughs> Yeah, they can if they if they want to. Yeah, yeah. I think it's sad to say I'm a convert in terms of the interest that I think of the subject. I think you know, as you say, a window into uh, people's everyday lives. Yeah, so that's yeah, it's, it's nice. It's the, the especially the rescripts and, and the papyri yeah. because the papyri often uh, contain petitions, so you have both sides. That you can't basically ever match them, but you get a good impression of both sides. Yeah. So. Get, get on to pepperology, David. <laughs> maybe maybe for my retirement. <laughs> okay, right. Thank you very much. Thank you.